you've been traveling with us through the book of 2 Corinthians this summer in our convertible Hemi Challenger, which would be, uh, in my mind, a, a very pleasant car to drive anywhere in the world, including that place that we don't often think about other than when we think about the book of the Bible, Corinth. It's a strange place by our our standard because it's obviously one that we've never, most of us have probably never been to, and it's strange because of so many features that go to make up the geography of, of Corinth itself, which we'll get into in just a minute. And sometimes you're reading through the Bible and you're reading about places like Corinth, and you're not really thinking so much about the place itself as much as you are about the stuff that is in the letter and how it applies to your life. And as I go into this third stop in our Jesus-driven Hemi Challenger, with us as passengers, because he's leading the way, we're asking the question, Lord, where are you taking us? And what is it that we need to know or discover along the way? And in this, in this third stop, I've, I've labeled this stop moving from the personal to the professional, which is kind of a weird statement, I think, because when you think of professional, you think of somebody who, you know, they're, they're called to do a job, they're good at it, they're trained, and so they're a professional. And sometimes it seems almost impersonal whenever you talk to a professional because they're, they're all business. But did you know that the word profession actually is a church word? Whenever we borrowed it in our culture to talk about people that wear suits and ties and, and business attire, uh, we tend to think of it in a different way. But originally it meant to profess something. And let me just tell you about another piece of geography that I saw yesterday for the first time. How many of you have ever been to Presque Isle, just north of uh, Erie, Pennsylvania? Anybody? Okay, so a few of you have. I've never been. I've lived out here almost 14 years, and I've never been to this place. And everybody says, yeah, you need to go at least once. And so my wife and I took a little day trip up there. Just her and I, because, hey, no kids. Weird, huh? <laughs> So we went up there and we thought, well, let's go check this place out. And as we did, we were actually pretty amazed at what we discovered. Uh, a, a, a beautiful sort of semi-island paradise right off the coast of Erie, PA. And one thing that we discovered was it had rained so much in the spring that evidently the waters had raised to record height. So much so that even parts of her part of the island was covered up with water, which was unknown. And as we kind of drove around the island, we saw kind of the residual effects of the flooding. And one of the things that happened in all of this sort of upheaval was driftwood. Tons and tons of driftwood found their way to Presque Isle. They were just littering the beach so much so that they had to take caterpillar uh, bulldozers out and just kind of redefine the landscape of the beach accordingly. In effect, what it did was created piles and piles of driftwood, all of which that my wife and I as were walking along the beach of uh, Presque Isle, saw someone had taken the time to pick up pieces and fashion them into what looked like sort of a little d dwelling in, uh, in, in, right there in that park on the beach. 
And I was intrigued by it. My wife said, you know, somebody maybe made that and maybe they live in it. And I said, it's a, it's a state park. Nobody can live in that. So I just march up there and I'm walking into it to look at it. And I'm looking over here. And all of a sudden I hear a voice over here. And it's a semi-naked guy. Well, he does have, you know, he's got swimming trunks on. Tattoos all over the place, so I'm not judging. And he's probably about 60. And he kind of says, hey. And I'm like startled. And I turn around and here he is. And I look at him and I'm like, oh, I just, we just invaded this guy's space, honey. I told you we shouldn't come in. And so I could, I could, because I no longer even look, I could hear her eyes rolling. And so I started to engage the guy in conversation. I thought, well, I've invaded your space, so I'll at least try to be cordial. And immediately, um, I looked up to the side of, of him by his cooler. There was a big, thick book. And you always know when you see a big, thick book, it's probably a Bible. And sure enough, he started professing. And he started confessing. And then he went into a sermon. And he kept going on. And Have you ever been to a church where the pastor just goes on and on and on? Yeah. You know exactly what I'm talking about then. And I'm like, God, you have some sense of humor here because I can't find the eject button anywhere. <laughs> and so uh, he sort of shared his views on the Lord and politics. And, you know, he was professing. And I, I thought that was kind of a treat in its own way because... I never expected that. It was just a hidden surprise that I discovered. And as we were walking away, I told her, I said, you know, it's always good when you just do a little trip like that to have, a, have an adventure, to do something that is not predictable, trusting that God will also do the unpredictable. And for me, it was, it was I don't know, there was a lot embedded in that experience that was meaningful, primarily because... It was unexpected, and God managed to speak through somebody that I really would never imagine that um, somebody in that state would have been a vessel. But I think that's what we do when we assume that we, we can't do it, and that's not for me, and sharing the good news is something I'm not interested in. Or maybe my view of being a Christian is mapped out differently. Perhaps... Some of you have come into this environment and you've thought, now, this is my vision of a perfect Christian. Now, in the case I just described, it wasn't too bad. I mean, how can you go wrong? A driftwood dwelling on a beach on a sunny day with some shade and enjoying, just enjoying the vibe, that's a pretty good, compelling picture. But some of you may have a picture of Christianity as, yeah, if, if, I, if I were to look at a perfect Christian, I would say, well, they have a strong faith, they, they trust God completely, and they get it right perfectly. Now, I know I've had that vision of what it means to be a Christian, and I know that perhaps many of you have also felt like, yeah, I wish I were good enough. I wish I had it all together. I wish I was like that person over there. But what we discover along the way is the truth of the matter is we're probably more like the hermit guy I talked to 
than that perfect image of a believer. And as God looks at us, He loves us for who we are no matter what. But He also knows that our view of things probably will have to change. If you were to do a survey of pastors and ask them, what is your idea of a perfect church? It would be a big church, oftentimes. If you were to ask perhaps a person who is normally sitting in, in a pew like you guys, what the perfect church would be like, it would be a church that could meet the needs of myself and my family. And oftentimes we define our Christian life based on what we want versus what, well, maybe there's another question. What's Jesus' picture of a perfect church or a vision of a believer? Now, if you can only imagine the Apostle Paul in Corinth 2,000 years ago, looking at a group of people like you and I, recognizing that they're living in a town that is kind of, well, it's kind of fast and loose. It's sort of like, it's sort of like New Orleans. It's right there on the body of water. People like the warm air. They like to party. And there's a lot of money flowing through that just kind of keeps it going. And if there are a lot of people who said, yeah, I've kind of been there. I've kind of done that. And it really is not the answer. And so the gospel got preached in this town called Corinth. And I, I just want to show you on a map what it looks like if we can. That is a Google satellite picture of the Mediterranean. And if you zoom in a little bit farther, you probably can't see it real well, but there's a little bridge of land between those two large bodies of water. You see it? And in the time of Jesus, a lot of trade happened in the Mediterranean world. And that was, I would say, if you zoom in just a little bit farther, Brent, that spot right there. Do you see a big line gouged through the middle of it? It's about a four and a half mile stretch from one body of water to another. And before the time of Jesus, in what appears to be some form of very hard rock, I'm guessing a lot of slaves in that day basically pounded and chipped away on that rock to create, essentially, a, a, a canal that was about 150 feet wide and four and a half miles long. And it's a pretty impressive canal. I don't know if I have a picture of that canal up there or not. Uh, maybe I do. Um, but if not, um, it's one of those places that is a dividing line between the two continents. And it is a place that defines a lot of things regarding trade, regarding culture, and there's a lot of business and money that flows through this area that it's really a desirable spot. Why am I bothering to go into all of that? So that you can understand that this is a hot spot for humanity. It's a place that people actually gravitate to because it, it offers opportunity for wealth, it offers opportunity for a variety of experiences. I mean, have you ever gone to, like, New Orleans or 
Have you ever gone to uh, the South or the West? Or have you ever gone to um, the, 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 the Upper East Coast? Or maybe, like my kids, they're like, have you ever gone to India? And I'm like, you're, you're, you're going too far with this. Uh, and yet there's something about the charm of the different. And so if you can just think of everything that's appealing to the modern mind, Corinth really had it. And they were so caught up in it that it was hard to get out from underneath their skin. And when they heard the gospel, they're like, every part of my being, I am financially doing pretty good. I am socially not doing bad. I am culturally discovering a lot of things in this climate because it is so rich culturally. But my soul, this place doesn't do anything for my soul. As a matter of fact, my soul is pretty beat up because it's almost too much. And it is almost, well, it's almost addicting. And so when the gospel came to that place, and I think it came pretty quickly after everyone was sent out, because of the location and because so much of how the gospel was transmitted happened on boats, this was an easy stop. And the Apostle Paul said, I want to see a church here because these souls are starving. And he plants it. But the problem is with so many of us, even though our souls are starving, our desire to align our lives with God in the ways that we need to, well, if we're comfortable, it's not going to be very strong. Yet there's something inside of us that says, I do want to change inside. I want to be a person inside that has more God characteristics and less of the stuff that is so polluted out there. But we, we bring it into church. And the Apostle Paul has written, is believed, to, is, is believed to be at least three letters to Corinth. And the second one, a lot of scholars think it's two of them matched up together. This was a place where people were very conflicted. They wanted God, but they wanted the world. God, we love you, but oh my goodness. That Mediterranean experience that we just had, parte. And yet, in my soul, it seems soul crushing. And they were just having a hard time taking their own hedonistic impulse, their own desire to feel comfortable all the time, their own need to be in charge of their world and mix some God in along the, along the way, well, Paul said, I got my work cut out with these guys. And when he wrote the letter, a lot of those hedonistic impulses came out. I mean, it was so wacky that basically a lot of people were sleeping with a lot of people that were not within the boundaries of a covenantal relationship. And one of these was so messed up that people were celebrating it in the church. And Paul's like, yeah, this is, this is going to take a while. And at first, as he called it out, and called it up, well, have you ever had anybody point the finger at you and say, 
you're messing up over here. Have you ever had anybody call you out? You know, when, when we were at Presque Isle, my, my wife and I, here's the difference between her and I. She's a rule follower. And me, I've always been, where's the line? I don't care about the rules. Where's the line? Now, hear me out, okay, because I'm a pastor. I do care about the rules. But my deeper question is, why are the rules there in the first place? Because sometimes the rules, honestly, they either don't make any sense or they maybe are outdated. But I really want to know why the rules are there in the first place. And so we're there on the beach, we're at one of the lighthouses, and there's a gate that goes to the beach, but it's locked. And you could crawl over it if you wanted to. And my suggestion to Mandy was, we should just crawl over that and go out to the beach. And I know, God's got work to do on me too. And I generally don't break rules that violate my covenant commitments. But I'm like, why is the gate locked? Everybody's going out on the beach. I can see them out there. They're just not using this game. And she's like, you need to follow the rules. Well, I learned to trust that if my wife's not on board, it's not going to work. So I said, okay, we will go around. And so we did. And when, when, when we did, we, on the way, stopped in the gift shop and had asked, why do you guys lock the gate? And they said, well, we don't really care about it that much, but the person over there, it's a pretty big deal. And I said, well, why are they so upset about that gate not being open? And then I heard, people come in off the beach, they go directly into the gift shop, and it is a Sandorama situation. And I'm guessing the third or fourth time anybody had to vacuum that up, then I'm like, I get it. I'm glad I listened to my wife. She knows better. And um, I understood the purpose behind the rules. Well, the Apostle Paul, and, and I almost got called out. Well, I got called out on it by my wife, and I would have gotten called out on it by the, the general who works in the gift shop. And personally, Nobody likes to be in the crosshairs, do they, where somebody calls us out. And when God looks at us and he says, I love you just the way you are, but he also sees a picture of your humanity that you've lived for so long without him, and he has a vision of a picture of your humanity where if you're living reliant and dependent and trusting him, it's a different picture. And if you're like me, sermons can be hard to take sometimes. Preachers are probably the worst at being preached at. And yet I know that when God says, this is something that I'm calling you to work on, they'll have to say it two or three times for me to hear it. But eventually, he'll get his point across. I'll be resistant. He'll name it. He'll call it up. And then I'll be like, yeah, I need to own that. I don't initially want to change, but yet I am changing because it's important to you, God, and I trust you. 
And so I'm not the rule breaker that I used to be. Matter of fact, I'm in church because I had rule breaking impulses as a 19 year old. But go figure. Yet I also know that in trusting his way in 30 some years, calling me out on different parts of my life that need to be right with him, right with my wife, right with the people that I work with and the people that I go to church with, God has kind of changed me in the process. And I used to be resistant, but now I'm actually grateful. I'm grateful. And sometimes the rebuke is from the Word as I read it, I'm like, oh, I wish I hadn't read that this morning. Sometimes the rebuke is from another believer that says, I don't know if you're seeing this or not, brother, but this is something that you're doing that is working against the purpose rather than for it. And I've gotten a lot better at receiving it, and I've learned to be grateful because in the end, I've always benefited from it. Now, the Apostle Paul, as he is reflecting upon this church and its resistance to grow, he knows it's not going to be easy. And he's had to write these letters so that he can help them to see and hope in time that God changes their hearts, just like as I began this message this morning before I even came in here. I pray that God would change all of our hearts, however necessary, and we'd be open to it. But it is a process. And as Paul is just reflecting on these people, he's a little scared. Because for the first time, he's getting ready to go visit them after all of this drama that he's had and exchanges through letters. Because he's stuck in Ephesus, going through his own trial by fire there, trying to help this church over here in Corinth. And he knows that now he's got to go meet them. And quite honestly, he's nervous. Because he's had to call out some things, and they pushed back, and it was painful. Matter of fact, they called him names. They discounted him. They discredited him. They tried to shut him down every way possible. And yet, something weird happened. On the way to Corinth, and I hope this isn't too much of a history thing for you, but hopefully you'll bear with me. On the way to Corinth, he's got a, another co-worker named Titus. And Titus has been at Corinth. And, he, and if I'm looking... If I'm looking at Karen Coffee right now and I see her as Titus, I'm starting to get a little nervous. Because I don't know what Titus is going to be saying about how well my presence is going to be received in this church. But as he comes into greater focus, getting closer and closer, I see a smile on his face. And I start to relax a little bit. And Titus walks up and he says, they're waiting for you. They want you to come and be a part of their worship gatherings. They want to hear what you have to say. And the only way that I can explain the scriptures that I'm getting ready to read to you is by sharing everything that I've shared with you up to, up to this point. So that you can understand a little bit the mind of the Apostle Paul and perhaps the mind of ourselves as we resist teachings that come from the Lord through people like Paul and, and hopefully, you know, myself and other leaders and each other. 
as God speaks to us, and hopefully we do it with credibility. Paul had been discounted on so many fronts. His credibility and reputation had been pretty beaten up. And yet when Titus said, they're ready for you, he sort of felt like, well, maybe all's not lost with these people. And this is what, this is what we read. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body, Corinthians, and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Then he goes on to say this. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Now, if I could just sort of give a little bit more explanation of what Paul just wrote, if, if we're not really tracking with sort of his mind, which is what this, what this stop requires of us. He's really wondering. I mean, he's in two minds. He's like, if it goes well, we can continue to build. If I am not received, we really are just, I'm going to have to just give it over to Titus and hopefully it will happen. But what he really was, was, was trying to underscore, not his own righteousness, not his own look at me, I'm better than you. None of that is there. It was more like we're in this together. Yet God is trying to do the painful process of helping us to change. Now, I don't know about you, but change is, as I get older, getting to be more of a four-letter word. Because life is complicated enough, and you start changing things, it, it, it's a little distressing. Yet, for some reason, God has designed our lives, our seasons in life, the world that we live in, the seasons of the world, to create change. So that we get shaken up just a little bit. I don't know if you're like me, I would like to say, if somebody told me at 18 years of age, do these 10 things and your life will be smooth sailing from here on out and you'll be good to go. I don't know about you, but I would love to have heard those ten things. It would have made life a lot easier. 
But oftentimes I feel like I just am reinventing the wheel and fire at every turn. But I also know this. God didn't... He, we're not in a situation with the Lord where we can say these ten things and I've got it mapped out really good and my soul will be good, my body will be healthy, my relationships will be strong, the culture that I am, I'm in will be perfect, the political backdrop will be what it needs to be, life will be good. And Jesus said, no, in this world, in this world, you, my friends, will have trouble. And the only way that you can overcome is not through a list of ten things, but through me. I overcome the world. And Paul just keeps saying, people, keep your eyes on him. And when you do, he will see you through. But along the way, he's going to rock your world. He's going to allow you to be discomforted. He's going to allow circumstances to cause you to trust Him more and more. He's, he's, going to, he's going to work in our lives in such a way that when we learn to trust Him and we learn to walk with Him and we learn to depend on Him in every facet of our lives, He knows that the fruit of that will be joy. But it'll be some discomfort. And it will be, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, it will be a repeated process of knocking you out of your comfort zone by the unexpected. And as I get older, I kind of like things to be predictable, to sort of be expected. And when I have things come at me sideways, can you relate to this? It's stressful, isn't it? You're like, oh man, where did that come from? It started out to be such a good day, and then this happened. And yet, God is saying, you're going to have trouble, and you need to trust. And maybe this is helping you to become no longer that comfortable person who's kind of like, I got my life all mapped out, and I got some God mixed into the picture, I'm all good on all fronts, and I'm in control. And God may be saying to you, when you least expect it, I'm going to throw a crusty old hermit who lives in a semi-log cabin made out of driftwood into your world. But when it happens, know that I'm in the middle of it. My son... When he came into the world, threw himself into the middle of the most horrific circumstances imaginable, voluntarily, so that whenever we go through those unexpected and uncertain times, those trying times when God calls us out, the only answer is Jesus, my friends. It's not a question of Show me what to do. It's more, show me who to follow. And the Corinthians went from people that were enjoying a Southern California lifestyle in all of its hedonistic 
and opportunistic glory to people that were saying, that stuff's not as important as it used to be. What I'm finding is the thing that is most important of all things is that Jesus remains front and center. Now when somebody calls me out or somebody calls you out, it's grieving, isn't it? But you know what Paul says? It's not a worldly grief. It's a godly grief. And in that passage you see up there, it grieves us into repenting, into changing, because God's surface circumstances has showed us what we need to change. And we pay attention. And then there's worldly grief. I'll just illustrate it two ways as I kind of land the plane of this sermon. And it's this. When Jesus was arrested, if you recall, he was led to the home of the high priest. And following sort of in the shadows was Peter. And as Peter's watching this, and he sees that the abuse is beginning to happen, it shakes him up. So much so that when somebody asks him, hey, aren't you, aren't you, aren't you one of them? Aren't you a follower of him? He's like, no, no. I have nothing to do with that guy. He's a, he's a loser. And it didn't occur just once, but we know the scripture says three times. And then after Jesus died, it was just confusion galore. And when he came out of the empty tomb, alive and immortal, Peter had to stop and think, oh, I betrayed the Lord. My heart is crushed to the, to the deepest degree because of all things I should have known. He said the whole time, I see it now. And he turned around and he became a champion for the church so much so that he himself was, was martyred. He was put to death by other people for sharing the gospel. He was so convicted through that painful circumstance of making the wrong choices. But like all wrong choices, it wasn't something that was a ball and chain that he was burdened with. But it was something that he took to the very cross that he was denying. And he said, forgive me. And you know what God said? You are forgiven. Now let's turn away from the rearview mirror. If you've learned what you need to learn. And let's get busy doing what we need to do. That's godly grief. Ungodly grief is this. There's another character in that story who said, I've never been on board the whole time. Matter of fact, I saw this initially as an opportunity to get, a, to get cozy with someone who's the Messiah, and I saw dollar signs all over it. And then when the time came that it was all falling apart, well, it's time to cut our losses and get what we can. So people, if you need to know something about this Jesus, you pay me 30 pieces of silver and he is yours. And then we know what happened afterwards. Because he was so fixated on wealth or his own agenda that he could not repent. 
He couldn't get past it, even though Jesus at every turn was calling him out in the most subtle and gracious way possible. He could never see it. And as a result, the despair was so overwhelming, he hung himself. That's ungodly grief. That's grief that says, it's on me and me alone, and there's nothing anyone can do about it. And maybe somebody has told you that lie, and you're burdened by something that you can't seem to bring before the, the Lord and say, please receive this, Lord. And if you are, you're like a whole lot of Corinthian people who initially said, we don't even want to ask Jesus to forgive us. We don't even see what we did wrong. We don't see the issue. But somewhere along the way, the despair of what they did and the lack of peace that they had as a result of it drove them to reality. And they said, rather than we hate the Apostle Paul, the question was, when is the Apostle Paul get here. We've been grieving. And we know we're forgiven. But we need to keep going. Now, maybe God is taking you up through a painful process right now of having to own something you really just did not want to own. And my friend, if you don't own it now, God will say, I don't want you to end up like Judas where you lose the ability to even see it anymore. I want you to come to your senses and to know forgiveness and healing and cleansing of that thing that is keeping you in chains. And the Apostle Paul who just literally had the tar beat out of them repeatedly, and you ask, why? I'll tell you why. Because he knew that if people stuck in their sin could come to their senses, there would come a time when they would be so grateful. Because now they see it. They see it more clearly than they ever have. You ever listen to song lyrics? You ever have a song like from the, the 70s that you heard and you're like, I have no idea what they're singing. My wife and I were driving back and we were listening to Elton John. And uh, we were listening to, um, uh, you know, the one God Electric Boots, the mohair suit. You know that one? Maybe you know that one, maybe you don't. Superstar style, hey kids, and I'm like, I don't know what it says after that. What do you think it says after that? And she said, well, I really didn't know for a long time, but I've heard the lyrics, and now I see it clear as day. And when we say the lyrics that we did not understand, and then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, you can't unhear them now. Hear them. Of course, I kind of make fun of her, too, because there was another song by BTO called Taking Care of Business. Anybody know that song? Well, I'm going to share this, and it's going to cost me, but it's for your benefit. <laughs> she told me in confidence, when she was a little girl, she thought they were saying, taking care of biscuits. <laughs> and 
I'm like, honey, I hate to burst your bubble. It's nothing to do with biscuits. And of course, when she heard it, she's like, oh, I see it now. Now she laughs about it. Now you laugh about it. Now we all laugh about it together, right? Because somebody else is, we're talking about somebody else, so it's fun. Wrong. <laughs> but right in this case. The Corinthians were discovering in the midst of all the things that they thought were a good, well-settled, very well-resourced, and hedonistic life. It, was, it really was subhuman compared to having the joy of the Lord. And the Apostle Paul said, I will go to the nth degree to see a day when you go from being content to finding a deep joy at the deepest layer of your being because Jesus is now at the center. And I don't know if Jesus is at the center of your life and that's where we're going to bring you to a close. Because having him at the center means that anything that you've done in the past that you're carrying into this room with you, he wants to relieve you of that burden through a blessing cross. And he wants you to walk out of here with peace. A peace that passes all understanding that is only from him. But maybe you're here because you've heard this and you've become unstuck. And now you're getting enough momentum that you're moving into all the good things of God. And maybe God's saying, we need to prune this. We need to refine that. We need to help you on along the way with this. And maybe sometimes it'll even require me letting some things happen, but it won't be mortal. And I'll be there with you. So you can come to your senses through a severe mercy. That's the mystery of God I don't understand. But he does, and I trust him. And many of us in this room are trusting him more and more.